We are live and ready to go here. Episode number five of the podcast to be named later, which is both a working title and perhaps a permanent one, as we have not decided on an official name yet. My name is Adam Rosen. I'll be your host tonight. Let's bring in the fellas. We'll lead with the elder statesman, Ian Gus. Ian, what's going on, my friend? Happy to have that distinction. How's everyone doing tonight? Doing well, doing well. We have Mike Weil in Chicago. How you doing, How's Mike? Every- I'm doing well. Another exciting two episodes of The Last Dance to get to, which uh, I'm, I'm ready and, and willing to talk about for as long as we need. Oh, baby, you better believe it. And Mike Mandel, our resident Philly sports fan. What do you have to say for yourself, Mike? Hey, folks, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to some good weather and finally being able to get out there again. So we have a lot to talk about here on the fifth episode here of our podcast, which, again, we are still working on a title, but uh, hopefully we'll have something next week official. But as of now, it's the podcast to be named later, which is kind of fitting. Um, So let's jump right into it. As you mentioned, there's a lot to talk about this week, despite there not being any live sports. We have uh, episode seven and eight of The Last Dance. We've got some NBA and MLB developments with regards to potentially picking up those seasons. The NFL schedule was released last week. We'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll wrap up at the end with some final thoughts. Uh, But we'll start with, of course, the legendary Michael Jordan documentary, which it's hard to believe, guys. There's only two episodes left. Um, I don't know what we're going to do with all our time and what we're going to talk about on the podcast in two weeks, but uh, let's, let's jump into it. So episode seven and eight, probably the heaviest episode yet. Uh, it dives into MJ's first retirement, the death of his father, uh, his foray into baseball with the White Sox AA affiliate. Uh, then it goes a little bit into his comeback and the legendary 72-10 uh, and 10 season with the Bulls, which ends up with the, the win over the Seattle Supersonics. And then uh, most poignantly, it really dives into his fierceness as a competitor and some of the relationships that he had with teammates, which were um, pretty controversial at times. And I think might rub people the wrong way if you saw that kind of behavior in today's day. So I'll just kind of leave it open-ended to start uh, initial reactions to episode seven and eight. I'll start with our resident Bulls fan, Mike Weil. Your thoughts? Uh, thank you for, for the uh, chance to lead off here. Uh, I, I loved episode seven and eight. I thought we got some really interesting perspectives, uh, more personal perspectives on Michael Jordan and uh, the emotion that he has toward, you know, how he was during his career and also just more insight into his day-to-day competitive mentality uh, and a little bit about why he retired. So so this this had a lot that I was looking forward to seeing and it didn't disappoint. Mike Mandel. Yeah, I was excited to see the the whole comeback. Uh, it, you know, towards the end of the '95 season, um, you know, it almost seemed like he he was reborn at that point because I I, I understand why he retired um, in '93. He he was I think me- mentally and physically drained. He'd already accomplished so much, and you know I guess he figured, well, if I can do something else at age 30 and you know try something new, why not? Um, I, and he even said during that press conference that he wasn't closing the door to coming back. But I think he uh, he discovered that basketball really is his number one true love. And, you know, he came back with 
with more fire than ever, and it was just great to see. Ian? Yeah, no, I think these these two episodes kind of had the most um, in terms of, you know, just different kind of aspects to his life and his career. So it just made it super interesting to watch, um, especially episode seven, I think maybe even stood out more. Um, you know, everything, I guess I was an eight, everything around Space Jam, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about and some of those pickup games that, you know, I was not aware of. Just some really interesting, um, you know, footage and then also just learning more about MJ the person, which, um, you know, it seems like there's definitely a lot to dissect there as well. So, yeah, looking forward to to diving in on it. You know, I've noticed throughout this documentary, there are two things that make Michael Jordan so emotional. Number one, his family, particularly talking about his father and, and you know, that he was murdered and just that relationship. But number two is when Michael talks about his personality, his, his fierceness as a competitor. He gets really emotional talking about that. And you see it at the end of episode seven, that really poignant moment where he talks about, you know, there being a price to winning and leadership has a price. And then that, that quote at the end where he says, look, I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I play the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. And then of course, break where he, uh, he he tells the camera, starts tearing up. He's getting so emotional about it. Um, we see throughout this whole episode that he's constantly clashing with teammates, um, not because he, he wants to be a jerk, but because he knows that that's what it's going to take to elevate them so that when they're in the big game, these guys are ready to compete. Uh, my, my question for you guys, and you can jump in right away, could, could the Bulls have had the same amount of success if Michael Jordan wasn't this hard on his teammates? I mean, we're never going to know. Um, I think that from from watching especially the practices and the, the details of what was going on with Scott Burrell and a couple of the other guys, Steve Kerr, um, Jordan was someone that only had one speed in terms of how he competed, and that was hard all the time. And if he thought you weren't competing hard, he was going to let you know. So I don't think it was realistic for there to be any other style because if anyone came at him about what he was doing, it's clear he wouldn't back down and he would just keep doing what he's doing. And you can't argue with success. So whether or not it would have been different had his leadership been different, I think it's it's not a realistic possibility because Michael Jordan only knew one speed but I think that there's for sure, you, you saw it a little bit when Jordan left, uh, Phil Jackson and, and Scotty and a couple of the other guys said that they were they had a great season the first year because everyone was in harmony. The triangle was running really well at that point. So there, there could have been some benefit in terms of the uh, lessening of stress day to day. But Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan, and you'll take Michael Jordan for his basketball skills any day with the competitive, almost the, the dis, I don't want to say it's a disorder, but he's bordering on some sort of competitive disorder where it's not normal how he's treating people. And um, I think that you could argue the fear that the players had pushed them to be the best they could be. And he, he even said that in one of the earlier episodes. He said, I don't have a, a gambling problem. I have a, a competitive problem. So, and you kind of see this continue to unfold throughout the episodes. Uh, Mike Mandel, what were your thoughts on the whole uh, 
seeing this side of, of Michael Jordan? And do you think that the Bulls could have had the same success if Michael was a little more even keeled? His teammates seemed to indicate that they wouldn't. And, and I think because everyone knew how much of a competitor he was, I think that even when he was tough, they still looked up to him as a leader. And, you know, to his credit, I, I think that Michael knew how to be tough, right? He, he was he was tough, but he was never unfair about it, right? He, he was never just a, you know, randomly, a, you know, a jackass to any of the individual teammates. He, he never had unfair criticism. I, I think there's a big difference between him, you know, being a tough but fair leader and somebody who's a locker room cancer who, who just brings down the rest of the team. And people said, said that about Jimmy Butler um, as a sixer, Obviously, Terrell Owens in the NFL. You got guys like that whom, you know, all, all the teammates will say, no, get rid of him. He's a cancer. But nobody ever said that about Michael, even at the time. And I, I think that was why. I think that, you know, the tough love is something that a lot of his teammates felt was cool. Um, you know, it's not like they don't have thick skin as basketball players. So I, I think they all felt that in the long run it helped them. Now, you know, would it have been different had he not been like that? I, I think, as Mike said, there's, there's really no way to know. But. His teammates, none of them seem to regret that he was tough on them. And I, I think to, to Mike's point, Mike Mandel's point uh, about Jimmy Butler, T.O. being cancers, what made Michael Jordan immune from that criticism was the fact that he's the greatest basketball player of all time. And that that in and of itself put up enough of a divide where you have this mystique almost where you can't touch him skill wise. So you know, anything he says has to be for my benefit because this is the greatest guy to ever do it. So I'm going to listen no matter how it's delivered. There are some great stories in there between uh, coming to blows with Steve Kerr and writing Scott Burrell. But as Will Purdue put it, he was a jerk back then. But looking back on it now, everybody says he was a great teammate. So that kind of leads to the next point. And when this documentary was first being talked about, and some of the concerns from from MJ's perspective was that oh it's it's going to shed me in a negative light and you know it would worry about his reputation but it's actually proving to be quite the opposite people are are really appreciating Michael and the way that he drove his teammates to be as successful as they possibly could be so my question for you and there's been some articles in the last couple of days out there that are insinuating this but do you think that this documentary is a fair portrayal of the type of player and, and teammate that he was, or has this kind of turned into a little bit of an MJ puff piece with his control over the editorial and just the way this narrative is kind of playing out? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't call it a puff piece. I think we've seen a lot, you know, more kind of sanitized um, documentaries in the past, whether it's, you know, for uh, athlete, celebrity, musician. Um, but, you know, I think there's always going to be those questions just because he, he and, you know, the NBA and his manager are all, I think, executive producers are involved in, you know, a lot of the kind of back end aspects of the documentary. So it's not like we're getting a, you know, 100 percent neutral look into him and, and the Bulls teams. But, you know, I think for the most part, it, it seems relatively fair. I mean, I, you know, I guess in, in a sense, like, you know, for example, everything around him having to miss a year, um, you know, and playing baseball instead, there's been so much, uh, you know, speculation about, was it a, a gambling related suspension? And, you know, it was very, very definitively addressed as like, there was absolutely no chance that this happened, which, yep. 
you know, again, it's, it's probably a lot about the editing, who you interviewed. I'm sure you could find an alternative perspective that maybe could have been included. So there's always kind of ways to nitpick, but I think given what it is and just the access that we're getting, we can't expect it to be, you know, full on, uh, you know, even handed on all sides. So I think, you know, I'm pretty much fine with it overall. Yeah, I, I agree with Ian. I think that for people, I, I read that Ken Burns had said that he wouldn't watch it because journalistically it's not up to his standards. Um, and there's other articles saying that, you know, this isn't really a neutral portrayal, but I, I'm not watching it to be like a neutral documentary about Michael Jordan's life. As Ian said, I'm watching it more for the behind the scenes stuff. And frankly, the fact that Jordan has been willing to talk about his retirement in 1993 and his relationship with his father and the gambling and letting a lot of these ugly aspects of his personality come to light. Um, I think that I'm in terms of the perspective, I don't have a problem because it's clear the reason this documentary came out was because Michael Jordan authorized it. So it's not realistic to expect, you know, a negative, a, a, a very neutral or negative portrayal of him when he's the one that has creative control over this. So I don't have a problem either. And I think that it's really the perspective of those people looking at this as objective journalism. Uh, that's not a realistic uh, perception to to watch the series with, I think. And Ian, you, you mentioned that the documentary makes it very clear that Jordan walked away from the game on his own in 1993. It had nothing to do with the, the gambling or the death of his father. Well, the death of his father was, was a, a reason for it, but um, he, he was certainly like wasn't forced out of the league. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So does that put this whole thing to bed? Mike Mendel, do you, do you think that um, it's, it's pretty clear now that MJ walked away on his own volition, or do you still have maybe a little bit of skepticism? I personally do not have skepticism. I mean... I looked at the clips of when he had just won the uh, the '93 championship. He he was wiped out, like, but both physically and and mentally, he was he was done at that point. I, I think he wanted more than anything to just be able to rest and, and to rest his mind and to to not have anything that that he has to you know overwork for. Um, obviously, he ultimately went into baseball, but I think for him it, it was just a huge gift to you know to not have any obligations um, as far as his career was concerned for the time being, and I. I do believe it was entirely his own choice, um, regardless of, you know, the rest of the circumstances out there. Yeah. Jordan. One other thing, uh, sorry, I'm just going to share on, on, you know, him being involved and, and kind of hearing from him. Obviously you weren't going to get that if he, you know, didn't like the filmmaker or whatever the case may be. Um, and you may have seen this too, but he was only, I guess, contracted or scheduled to do two sit-down interviews um, for the documentary. And then he ended up doing a third, um, which, you know, again, that's probably has a lot to do with the relationship with the filmmakers themselves. So I think we are probably getting, you know, a, in a sense, kind of a, you know, a more freed version of MJ, just because, you know, we know his history is he doesn't like to talk. He doesn't like to give extended quotes or anything like that. So, um, you know, it's hard to say, even if you had a neutral person like a Ken Burns, like you probably wouldn't be able to get anywhere near the access that these guys got to MJ himself. So Jordan walks away from the NBA after winning three straight titles and decides to pursue a career in baseball. His father had always wanted him to be a baseball player. 
And so that's what he did. He he signed a minor league deal with the Chicago White Sox double-A affiliate, the Birmingham Barons. And it was a pretty funny to hear that the reason he was assigned to double-A was because that was the only stadium that could accommodate all the media that was going to be there to uh, to cover his games. And so Jordan plays a little under a season, 127 games, 202 batting average, three home runs, 51 RBIs, 30 stolen bases, and a 13-game hitting streak in April. You look at the batting average, obviously very low, but then again, you factor in the fact that he hadn't played baseball since he was 17 years old, which was, uh, I guess he was 31 when he retired, so 14 years ago. How would you assess his stint as a minor league baseball player? Was it a success? Was it a total failure? Uh, Mike Weil, I'll start with you. Yeah, so as as also a White Sox fan, I had the privilege. My my dad's awesome. Like he took me to so many cool things. Looking back, that was just, it, it. I'm I'm lucky to have seen them. I went to the uh, there was a game at Wrigley Field before the season in 1995, and Michael Jordan played and hit a double for the White Sox. It was freezing, but I remember we stayed most of the game, and it was very cool to watch. So I. I have fond memories of him as a baseball player from that. Um, And I think that just coming out of retiring from being the greatest basketball player in the world, the fact that he hit 200 in the minor leagues, and I don't know if double A then was the same as double A now, where a lot of the more talented prospects are in double A and some make the jump to the big leagues. They don't stay that long in triple A anymore. Um, so if double A was where you got the best prospects knocking on the door, uh, it's crazy to me that he hit over 200. I mean, it just speaks to his work ethic that he didn't play baseball since high school. Imagine going from high school baseball, skipping college, going to double A, not rookie ball or a low level and getting a hit one fifth of the time. And he started, he had a 13 game hitting streak in, in April. So I think had he continued, I would have hated that as a Bulls fan. But knowing his work ethic, I think he could have gotten at least maybe a September call-up um, just to to kind of check out his skills. Because from what they were saying and how hard he worked, uh, it seemed to me he was making uh, exponential progress. I think a lot of people will look at the batting average and assume, okay, he had 200, guy can't play. But you factor in the really long layoff between playing and the fact that this guy had 51 RBIs, which I think was third on the team yeah, is very impressive and 30 stolen bases. It's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, you can't just say, Oh, he's, he's fast. He should be able to steal bases. There's a, there's an art to stealing bases and and these catchers, even though they're in double a have, you know, the, the, the best arms in the world. And the fact that this guy was able to steal 30 bases and be a somewhat reliable player, I think, personally is is really impressive um i agree with you mike that if he really wanted to play he he would have he could have made it to the majors only because the white Sox would have loved the ticket sales i don't know if his talent would have necessarily warranted it but it's pretty impressive to think what he did in in just one season after such a long layoff and the natural comparison is to what tim tebow is doing now and although tebow has has struggled you know he started a lot lower than jordan and he slowly worked his way up to double A, but he hasn't had the success that Jordan had, despite being in the minors for a much longer period of time. What do you think, Ian? Do you think Jordan uh, 
could have wrote it out to the major leagues if that's where his passion really lied? I mean, I would never bet against him. So I, I think he probably would have. It may have taken a couple years. And, you know, who knows if he ever would have been a everyday player or star player. But, you know, getting that call up, uh, I think, would eventually have happened. I think what was interesting to me watching that kind of part of the documentary is, as I remembered it, and maybe it's because of that SI cover, but I didn't realize how basically decent he was in the minors. I thought he was like an abject failure and basically just kind of dropped out. But, um, you know, seeing how he started really hot, then he, you know, kind of went cold, not being able to hit the off-speed pitches and then really kind of learned and kind of um, figured it out. Um, the stolen base piece I wasn't aware of. And, you know, he wasn't a super young guy. He was, what, 31 years old. So he's not going to be the fastest guy on the team at that point. So it is very impressive. And, um, you know, just listening, obviously, to Frank Conan documentary, listening to some other, uh, you know, interviews just on the radio the past week or so, I think everyone was basically saying he definitely would have got to the majors. There's, there's no reason to think he wouldn't have, given his work ethic and obviously his talent. Yeah, and I so, feel like the... Um... The 94 strike obviously didn't help when, when it comes to you know, determining whether he could have made the majors or not. The, the one thing I'll say for him, obviously he wasn't a power hitter. He was much more of a hit and run type of guy, but I think he had the potential to get up there. Um, I, I think if you show that much talent, you know, with, with having barely even picked up a baseball bat over such a long period of time, um, you know, there was that potential. And with the White Sox not being all that great back then, um, sorry, Mike. I, I, I think there would have been pretty strong calling for him to, you know, give it a try in the majors and see what he had. Yeah, I think also I misspoke. It was '94, not '95, uh, because April '95 he was back with the Bulls. But um, the White Sox actually were pretty good at, at that point. They had not to make it about the White Sox, but they had it in '94. Uh, they were basically they were almost in first. And they also, in 93, made it to the ALCS. They made the playoffs in 93. So they actually were in one of their better stretches. But I think that had he stayed, to Mike Mandel's point, 96, 97, they were bad. So that would be when he would join. But uh, I think personally, and going back to Adam's last question, I think he just wasn't challenged anymore by basketball. That's why he left. Like, he was, he needed something to to challenge him. And he said, winning another championship isn't going to do it for me right now. And I'm exhausted of being chased around. I think he kind of wanted to be at the bottom rung of something again, because he's that type of person that he needs that competitive fire to, to be stoked at all times. So like he was saying in the minor league clubhouse, he wanted to be treated like one of the guys. And he, it seemed to reignite his passion for basketball because I think he was away from it. He saw the Bulls didn't make it to the finals without him, and that was a challenge. He wants to prove, okay, with a new set of guys, I can I can take them back. Um, so, Adam, do you think, I mean, is, is the challenge of minor league baseball, you think, what drew him, or are you still skeptical of the – the, the gambling stuff and the other well, stuff. The, the, the documentary certainly paints a very clear picture of, of what allegedly happened. So yeah, I mean, I watched the documentary and I, I come off pretty convinced that he was really just worn out by the stress and everyday grind of being not only the best player on his team, but the face of the league. And he wanted to step away. His, his father was murdered and it was kind of all these things coming together at once. 
So while MJ was uh, toiling away, or I shouldn't say toiling, he was uh, doing his thing in, in Birmingham, the Bulls were actually having a pretty good season. Uh, Scottie Pippen emerged as the leader of the team. He was actually an MVP candidate in the full season that Jordan was out. But the documentary goes into that uh, epic playoff game against the Knicks where game is tied, Bulls have a chance to draw up a play, and Phil Jackson draws the play up for Tony Kukoc to take the final shot. So Scotty is infuriated by this and actually takes himself out of the game. A playoff game against the Knicks, an arch rival, he takes himself out of the game. Kukoc, of course, makes the shot. The Bulls win, but you can see everybody's reaction after the game that they're mentally, uh, they're mentally defeated. They, their, their leader has quit on them, and they ended up losing the series. But really, to see something like that happen today, uh, you, you wouldn't hear the end of it. So my question for you guys, does Pippen taking himself out of that game uh, change the way you think about him uh, as far as his legacy is concerned. I think what was surprising to me was the fact that although he apologized for his actions, he said in the documentary that if he had to do it all over again, that he probably would. So I guess does hearing that uh, change your opinion on what he did and how you view his legacy? It doesn't seem like much of an apology if you're saying you're going to do it again. So, I mean, he could say that. But, um, yeah, I, I think that was obviously a really bad look. Um, I think overall Pippen, you know, hasn't come across great, across, you know, throughout this documentary. And I don't know if that, you know, talking about who's kind of making the decisions, who knows how much of that is Jordan's kind of input. But, um, yeah, I think that was that was pretty crazy to see. Um, and. Obviously, that's not what you want out of any player, especially, you know, a star player is supposed to be your leader, especially when when MJ has gone. So um, that was super disappointing. Um, while I'm curious, like in the moment, what were your thoughts when that was going on? Like it flashback to that. Playoff yeah. Series? Like, was that something was that something that just like blew up at the time or, you know, obviously, I guess we were kind of young, but um yeah, so I actually, I, I personally can't remember exactly how I was feeling because I was I was little at the time, um, and I probably didn't even realize, I, I don't even remember that personally. Uh, if I remembered anything, it would probably be that they won on a last second shot, and, and I'd be excited about that. But watching the documentary, um, you know, for sure there was, it, it blew up in Chicago because this is your your lead dog at this point that is sitting on the bench, the last play of the game in a, in a huge playoff game. Um, and it was definitely, I, I read actually some newspaper articles from that time just to get the perspective. And it was, it was very controversial. A lot of people didn't know why he did it. Um, and then because at the time, how are we supposed to know that, Phil drew up the play with Scotty inbounding. You don't you don't really get that information till after the fact. So um, it definitely blew up. But I I think that it was something where Pippen was a great player. He was overlooked because of Michael Jordan. He was having a problem with Jerry Krause and in, in his contract, and he also wanted the respect and the spotlight during that season. So when the last play of a game is not drawn up for you and you're, you've been carrying the team all year, I get his frustration. Obviously it's not the right thing to do, but 
at the time it was like a heat of the moment decision and he says he would have done it again but you can tell he he regrets it i think i i but i don't think it's fair to have it as a a tarnish on his legacy i i think that it was just a momentary slip up but yes. what other big player has ever done that yeah that really to me out. that that's about one of the worst things you can do especially as a star player to to quit on your team and on top of that all these years later to say that you would do it again i mean what he did they won the game and the team couldn't even enjoy the victory they were so deflated that that decision by scotty i don't think they they really fully recovered from that until until michael came back obviously um so it's tough, you know. I, I certainly understand his frustration, and he was again. Uh, I think he was the runner-up for the MVP that season. But to take yourself out of a playoff game, I mean, LeBron deferred to Kyrie uh, in the NBA Finals. He actually wanted Kyrie to take the shot. I think you, you get caught up in the heat of the moment, but it's one of those things where, as Michael said in the, in the documentary, that it will it will be a stain on his record, um, you know. For, for the rest of his life. But I do want to go back to what Ian was saying, how maybe this is how Michael wanted to portray it in the documentary. I do want to be fair to him because he did, he has praised Scotty a lot throughout the documentary and has said that, you know, he never won a championship without him. And anyone who speaks Michael Jordan's name should also speak of Scotty Pippen. So I, I do want to make that clear that I, I think Michael has made it very clear how much he admired Scotty, but that was certainly a blip on his re resume for sure. I guess I mean maybe more from selective editing or something around that. Um, I, I don't know. Like I feel like if I were Scotty Pippen watching the documentary, and maybe because it's true, but it just seems like he doesn't really you know, come across great. I mean, I think that the, the scene afterwards, so to your point about the locker room was deflated, it spoke to me that Pippen was crying after that. I mean, he clearly felt remorse, even though he's being stubborn or the way that they they're editing, it makes him look stubborn. I think after the, the fact immediately, he felt bad about it because he was crying. He apologized to, to his teammates and that series people forget, um, or at least in Chicago, they don't, but in other places they do that there was a phantom fall on Scottie Pippen in game five at Madison Square Garden that, that basically gave the Knicks the game, that Hugh Hollins called a foul at the end of the game. Hubert Davis shot a three. Pippen lunged at him, didn't make contact. He touched him after the shot. Davis flopped, and then they gave him three shots. That swung the series in the Knicks' favor. The Bulls won game six and then lost in New York in game seven. So had the phantom call on Pippen not happened, the Bulls might have advanced, and that game was toward the beginning of the series. There was still a lot left to play. And I don't buy that, you know, that was the reason why they lost. I, I think that because Pippen cried and apologized, the team at least immediately recovered. Um, so I, I disagree. But I, I think that the documentary has made me feel two things about Scotty. Number one is that he was underrated as a player. I think the documentary has done a great job of showing just how important he was to those teams and how he was a lockdown defender. And I think the second part is the documentary shows what a big ego he had. And, and you see that with the contract disputes and the, you know, sitting out against the Knicks. But overall, I, you know, it's just another uh, eccentric personality on this Bulls team and what has made this such a, 
a fascinating documentary to watch. But one thing to kind of think about, if you go back, if Tony Kukoc misses the shot, remember the game was tied, so it would have gone into overtime. And Phil Jackson would have had a really interesting decision to make in that his best player had just quit on him. So for the overtime period, if if you guys were coach, would you have put Scottie Pippen back in the game? Or would you have sat him out as kind of punishment for quitting on the team in the fourth quarter? I'll start with you, Mike Mandel. Well, I, I think it sort of goes hand in hand, right? You know, I don't think you want to assume that if you do put Scotty back in the game, that he's going to give you 100%. I think at that point, given that he had quit on them, I don't know that it was such a good idea, you know, because I don't know that I would trust him to, to give me that game. Um, so I, I think I would have kept him out. I'd obviously want to talk to him after that game and, you know, see what was going on and, you know, hope that nothing like that had happened again. But uh, my, my money would not be on him saving the team. I'm the coach. I think, though, to, you know, to kind of play devil's advocate, to leave the best player on the bench for, you know, a decisive overtime period, I think he'd be second guessed probably for the rest of his career, Phil Jackson. So it's definitely a tough decision. I mean, the way I would probably go about it if I were coaching is have that discussion with him in the moment, you know, right after it happens during the TV timeout and really get a sense from him of, you know, are you in it? Are, you know, are you here to win it for us? Um, you're our, you're our star player. Um, and I'd lean towards putting him in unless he, you know, literally continues to blow me off and, you know, punishment can be a fine or whatever later on, but I feel like it's too important in a moment to have your best player on the bench. That, that's basically the, the conversation he had with, right? that's basically the conversation he had with Scotty that we said, Scotty, are you in or are you out? He says, I'm out. You know, yeah, Phil yeah. doesn't have time to say to, to beg him to come back into the game. I mean, he's got to make a decision there. Mike, what do you think? I mean, that was just the one play. I, I think that Phil's not the type of guy. He's very smart. He's a Zen guy. He doesn't hold grudges in, in, in that way that like a Bob Knight or, or more of a tough minded coach would. I think that it it's an easy decision. You put him back in the game in overtime. I think that the the time was short because it was a short timeout and they had to make a split second decision. And it was just that one play, but, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't have any doubt that that Scotty would have been asked to go in and probably would have gone in at that point, because if he doesn't go in at that point, then, then it's a situation where it really could tarnish his legacy. Where if you lose because he doesn't go in because of pettiness, I don't think, I think Pippen's smart enough where he wouldn't have made that decision. It's very easy for us to play armchair coach and say for sure what we would have done in that situation. I I personally can't say with certainty. I think you have to be in the moment. That being said, I believe if if Kukoc had missed the shot and the game went to overtime, uh, Phil would not have put Scotty back in the game. I think I think Phil is no nonsense kind of guy and. You get one chance in a spot like that to make the right decision. If you're Scotty, he chose the wrong decision, and I think Phil would have stuck with his guys and and played it out however it may be. So we'll do one last uh, topic on the last dance before we shift gears. Uh, I'll, I'll again leave this open-ended. Either things you'd like to see in the final two episodes or just any other big takeaways from episode seven and eight, the Space Jam game, anything you guys like, I'll, I'll leave it open-ended. Mike uh, Wild, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, there there were a lot of things that I I really uh, thought were 
were interesting in this episode, and they could have made an episode about a couple of things, Space Jam included. Uh, Space Jam for me was an awesome movie. I mean, for all of us, is when we were like perfect age for it, like around nine years old, ten years old, and um, you know, to see him with the green screen and all the the people around him, uh, it it really gave you the inside look. the The thing also that was cool was all the players came to play with him at, at the studio that they set up in a, I guess he requested either in his contract or before he requested that a gym be built at the studio so he could practice. And you saw Sean Bradley and Reggie Miller and Patrick Ewing, a lot of these star players come to practice with him. And it's sort of like in his mind, he's thinking like, Ooh, I'm sizing these guys up for when I'm playing again. Um, and then for the players, it's like, Oh, well, did Mike lose it? Like are and they're testing themselves against him. So that was really, really cool to see. Um, but yeah, there were a lot. I, I also like the emotional aspects uh, that that you saw and seeing Michael Jordan cry and hearing Michael Jordan cry after the championship against Seattle, um, you know, that was something that that I hadn't heard the audio of where he's crying with the trophy. Uh, and that just shows you he had no moment to himself. And I, I kind of felt for him because he's crying over his father. Those weren't tears of joy. They were tears of agony. And he missed his dad. And um, I felt bad. Like, leave him alone in, in that moment. So so the emotional stuff was also cool to see. Ian? Yeah, I, I agree with what a lot of you said. This, the Space Jam behind the scenes footage um, was super interesting with the green screen and the, you know, cameras from the mid to late nineties and all that. And, and obviously the players playing pickup games that, um, you know, I think you get some of that these days or, you know, over the past few years, and that's probably around when that started, it's kind of that summer, uh, you know, pickup games among players. So that was really cool. I think moving forward, obviously his uh, second unretirement, we'll get into that, I'm sure. And everything with the wizards. And I think, for me, I'm just curious where where it ends. Are they going to touch on his uh, you know time as an owner? I assume not. <laughs> that uh, you know obviously wouldn't be the the most uh, you know the highest point on his resume. But um, be interesting just to see kind of how the the series ends and if there is kind of you know a door open or if he kind of alludes to his future or or things of that nature. So definitely excited to see um, how the last two episodes turn out. So a couple of points. First, with with um, with Space Jam, which was filmed over the course of the '95 '96 season, well, one thing I'd want to know is, did that somehow provide him even more motivation to make the the '96 season the best ever by any basketball team? Like, did did he want that movie to come out knowing that he did something and that he led his team to to a feat that no other team had accomplished before? Um, they they talked about how tired he was, you know, having to both film and practice basketball. Um, throughout the course of the filming, but, you know, did, did that actually help him? Did that make somehow make him even better than he already would have been coming right back from retirement and needing to prove himself? And I think when we look at the end of the series, one thing I want to see is you know, a recurring theme throughout has been how, you know, Jerry Krause had continually said that 98 was going to be Phil Jackson's last season, no matter what. Um, and that Jordan was likely thinking along the same lines because of that. After they won the championship, were there any second thoughts? You know, was was Kraus reconsidering it all? Had there been any discussions? Okay, maybe we'll keep the the team together for 
you know, another another season given how they finished that one. So I'm, I'm curious as to whether they're going to touch on that. And I've got three real quick final points on the documentary. Number one, which I actually texted Mike Weil about as it was happening, uh, as they were airing it, was the first scene of episode seven, you hear Craig Sager ask Jerry Krause about the quote-unquote backstabbing that was taking place between the front office and Phil Jackson. And then Jerry Krause proceeds to uh, completely undress him uh, before storming off the, the press conference. I would have loved to have seen Craig Sager. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. I'd love to have seen him interviewed for the documentary. I'm sure he's got some great stories between that. And if you remember a few episodes ago where he hands Dennis Rodman the $20 bill to help pay for his fine. So he, Craig <laughs> yeah. Sager has had arguably two of the most memorable moments from a uh, sports media personality standpoint in the documentary. So that was that was kind of funny to see. Number two... Last uh, last week's episode has produced my new favorite MJ meme, which is the clip of him. Uh, he's on the iPad looking at Gary Payton talking about how he was slowing down Jordan and how if he had guarded him in the earlier games that the Sonics might have had a chance. And then Jordan starts laughing his head off. Uh, my new favorite meme, arguably of all time. Uh, and my third point, real quick, back to the sports media personalities, Ahmad Rashad, guys, is 70 years old. Uh-huh. How crazy is that? <laughs> he needs also, to release what he's eating because I would follow yeah, that, Reg. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Is, is he like the most embedded like reporter with, you know, the top of any top player? Like, was he just like hanging out with MJ like in his whole career? Like, what was that relationship like? I, yeah. that was well, something people that I was... forget he was he was a really good NFL player. I mean, he's he's accomplished a lot in his career. Um but yeah, you know, I think there are certain guys in the league who they have their one go-to reporter. You know, with LeBron, it's uh, Brian Windhorst, and uh, you know, all these guys have this generally one one guy that they're comfortable going to for for the big stories. And in this case, Michael and Ahmad Rashad were very close, and they actually hung out. There's cl- there's photos of them uh, smoking cigars together, so they were obviously very close. Yeah, I think Ahmad and him started to be friends early in his career before Michael Jordan really became a superstar. And you'll see a pattern with, with his group. I mean, his, his family and his, his driver and Ahmad Rashad has, um, they form that group. And a lot of the players uh, didn't get that close to him. So, so I think that it, it paid dividends for Ahmad Rashad but it shows a lot about who Jordan is and and how insular he is and the fact that he was closest with those that didn't have anything to do with with helping him on the court they were they were all kind of pieces that were uh they they surrounded basketball but they weren't playing with him so it's interesting to me also because a lot of the players don't seem like they're that close with him but Ahmad Rashad who is, you know, a broadcaster still seems very close with Michael Jordan. So, so that also is something that was uh, enlightening to, to see. Well, episodes 9 and 10 are Sunday night. The last two episodes of the documentary, which has provided us with some excellent content for the first five episodes of our podcast. So I don't know what we'll talk about afterwards, but I'm sure we'll all be glued to our TVs then. 
So with that, let's transition over to some MLB and NBA talk. We've spent the, the past couple of weeks talking about whether or not we think either season is going to come back. And now we actually have some tangible proposals to look at, both for, the, for MLB and to a lesser extent, the NBA. So MLB, the owners have agreed to a proposal for an 82-game season, which would start right around July 4th with a 50-50 revenue split with the players, which has been uh, one of the, the big holdups of this proposal. Um, all, the, all, the, uh, all the games would be played in the home stadiums with no fans. So none of this, you know, Florida, California, Texas, it would just, teams would be playing in their home, in their home ballparks, no fans, 14-team uh, playoffs, 30-man rosters, and then a universal DH, which for this season I don't think is is controversial at all. But it appears that the big holdup, and a lot of stuff is getting leaked out, is over this debate between the owners and the players and what the revenue split should be. And is that going to be ultimately what prevents this plan from, from moving forward is they can't agree on the dollars to make it work. So, Ian, I know this is a topic you're very passionate about. So can you take a side between the owners or players? What are your thoughts on how this plays out? Well, I think it's disappointing to see all the leaks um, because I feel like that's a case of they're trying to, you know, play it through the press and through public perception rather than kind of quietly negotiating. And obviously, given the times we're living in with the amount of uh, death and job loss across the nation, I think it's just a bad look across the board. That um, leads me to think that they will eventually make a deal in terms of the dollars. I think the testing and you know virus aspects are kind of going to be the bigger hangups in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be probably a few rounds of back and forth. I would think the the players are going to kind of counter propose then we'll probably see MLB counter propose that and then maybe they'll finally hash things out i mean similar to when you have a cba they really do best when there's a true deadline and i don't think we're aware of what that true deadline is um so hopefully someone sets one and they can actually work towards it so we can see a resolution because it's it's kind of unfortunate to see uh this this kind of back and forth um you know, as kind of the immediate reaction to the proposal that was put out. Either of the mics. So from my standpoint, unsurprisingly, I'm going to take the player's side. And if you look at the split there, the owners, they're concerned about one thing, and that is the incoming cash. Um, the, the players, it's not just about that. It's about the safety, too. I mean, people say that it's the elderly population or people with pre-existing conditions that are most at risk. Um of contracting the worst symptoms from coronavirus, but it's not exclusively them. I mean, we, we don't know if by, by virtue of doing their daily job, one of these players could contract a, even a lethal or very harmful form of coronavirus. And I, I think from their standpoint, there has to be 100% confidence that the league is doing what it needs to, um, that the, the testing has to be universal um, and there needs to be a clear plan in place for if somebody does test positive. Um, not saying that it can't happen. I think in all likelihood it could. And, um, the, the players probably would be willing to agree to something, but you know, it, it can't just be about the revenue. Safety has to, has to take a role in this. And, and that's why, you know, I, I've got to, for the most part, err on the player side. You know, if, if it starts getting ridiculous, then I, I could see myself, you know, saying, well, let's just get this thing started. But, um, I think, you know, you have to 
you have to as little as the owners want to hear this you have to balance revenue with safety yeah Mike, I, Mike while I yeah I, I'm sure you have some strong thoughts on Jerry Reinsdorf for all the great work he's done for your Bulls and White Sox over the years oh my god yeah uh so they, I, I agree with Mike on this, and and I heard, I, I saw on Twitter that they were saying that for uh, the teams to play with no fans, it's going to be hard for the owners to break even this year in terms of even if you pay the players slightly less than half of what, like a 50-50 revenue split, um, and owners that are very money-oriented – I'm not going to name names, but Adam just mentioned someone that drives a very hard bargain. Um, they're not going to like paying players more than they have to. So I think Mike Mandel is absolutely right. And Sean Doolittle uh, echoed that on Twitter, saying that we need to know what is the policy in terms of testing. And if someone gets coronavirus and they there's a much bigger risk to the players because they have to be traveling and make contact with everyone on the field and uh, put themselves and their families at an increased risk. So the argument you get into is what is that price? What is the split that's going to bridge that gap in terms of risk versus money? And I think that there is going to be a season. My gut feeling is they're going to hammer out the money. Um, but it may take a little bit and it may take pressure from some outside source or the owners or players just realizing we want a season no matter what. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, there might not be a season. And, and that's very sad to me, but it's the reality of the situation we're in. It's very clear to me that the owners are the ones leaking this information to make the players look bad. And it's hard to feel too badly for either party, given how much money they're making. But I will say that uh, baseball th uh, has by far the, the strongest uh, players union, and I would expect them to hold their ground here. And this isn't, again, this isn't just about negotiating revenue split. Right now, this is about uh, the health of the players. And I don't think that they would agree to something, particularly given the circumstances and knowing that they're putting themselves at risk, they're putting their families at risk. So I would expect them to hold firm and try to hold out for a little bit more money. But yeah, it's it, it'll be fascinating to see what happens. There's going to be a lot of pressure from the public to to reach some kind of agreement. But the the baseball players uh, association is very very powerful, and they're not going to settle. I don't believe for. Uh, anything less than what they think is fair value. And it is interesting that the, you know, there was nothing about what happens if, you know, such and such scenario, because I feel like that's so central to any return of, of any sport, but especially if baseball wants to be first, you would hope that was in, you know, a part of their proposal, but for whatever reason, that piece of it didn't leak. Um, you know, I know we're going to talk with the NBA and it seems like with the NBA, they're kind of starting at that, which to me makes yeah. more sense. So, um, you know, I guess we'll see what, what happens from here. But um, one piece I did want to bring up, and I was curious, I guess, from you NL fans, the universal DH. I feel like this is a way that maybe they'll kind of slowly integrate it. If it works out this year, could we see it just staying? I think we could we could do a whole hour on uh, the, the DH, which, by the way, I'm against in the National League. You, you guys in the AL can, can have your DH. Me personally, one of the few holdouts. I feel like I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it okay right with now. It. I think if it'll help 
uh, eliminate risk for some of these pitchers who are, are being brought back quickly. I, I think it's okay. It would certainly, as a Mets fan, it would. I'd love to see Cespedes get a crack at the DH and not have him out in left field. Um, I I think inevitably the, the DH will be here sooner or later, but I'm sticking to my guns. Uh, make guys play the field. Use pinch hitters. Double switch. Don't bring the, the DH to the National League long term. So, uh, you know, I yeah, that could be one of our shows after the documentaries. <laughs> there you go. We'll write yeah, it absolutely. down. Like, you know, I personally do like the strategies that that the NL has to employ when it comes to pinch hitters and pulling pitchers out at the right time. But at the same time, you know, I, I might be in favor of moving the DH to the NL only because interleague play tends to be uneven. Because you, know, you think about it, an AL roster has nine starters on it, right? The NL rosters only have eight. And I think that, you know, when it comes to interleague play, especially when they're playing in an AL stadium, it puts NL teams at an even greater disadvantage because they don't have that ninth regular starter um, that, that, that can evenly match up with the AL. And one more quick baseball point before we switch over to what's going on with the NBA. We've talked about the, the money situation, but as far as the actual... Uh, rules and, and how the season would play out. It'd be an 82 game season, which, I mean, that's a full NBA season. Obviously, for baseball, it's it's half of what a normal season would be. But would you guys consider this to be a legitimate title if your team or maybe a, a surprise team that had very low expectations won the World Series with such a abbreviated schedule and you know mixing up of the the divisions? Would would it be legitimate to you? Heck yeah, it would. Are you kidding? Absolutely. <laughs> I expected Sox that from you. World Series this year? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll trumpet that. Also, it's even better because we would play the Cubs more times. So that that's even like a bigger victory. So I would, but what if I the would Cubs win raise it? the banner myself. If the Cubs win, it's not legitimate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's what I thought you'd say. Um, but if the Sox win, yeah, for sure. Like, not even a question. Yeah. I, I think for I me, mentioned this on a previous yeah. podcast. My biggest fear as someone who's never experience the title particularly with, with my Mets would be to see them win a championship and not have it be universally recognized we already get enough hate on Johan Santana's no hitter because he gave up the um the ball hit down the line by David Freeze, which was ruled a foul ball but if instant replay were around it very clearly would have been a fair ball um I I can't be uh I can't be too picky about how my championships come but uh to me, I think this, the situation is what it is. I think you have to recognize it for what it is, which would be a championship. If that's how the season is played, then everyone's dealing with the same set of circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I, I think you kind of... Go ahead. Ian. That's true. I think it's, you know, it'll be thought of differently. I think it's legitimate. I think they are the true champions, but it's still going to be a different season. I think for me, you know, seeing a team that you wouldn't expect to win, you know, if it's something totally out of the ordinary, you know, the bottom of the barrel teams or even, you know, like the Cincinnati Reds or someone who would not be a favorite um, White Sox maybe are somewhere a little bit above that. But, you know, if it's if it's one of the top teams that ends up winning, I feel like there's less of a discussion around it. But if it is someone more out of the blue, it'll stand out even more, at least for me. Real quick, like, for a, real quick for like any a of true you Yankee fan with 27 <laughs> championships. But no, wait, I have one more point. Sorry. Yeah. 
Think about the other lockout shortened seasons, though. Like, this isn't a lockout, but those are still championships. I was about to, yeah, that's what I was going to 20 games shorter, isn't it? And they're changing the rules and your sky. Like, there's a lot more changes. I was about to mention that. How many championships does Tim Duncan have? Somebody. Right. The lockout season counts. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, the answer is five. And if one of you had answered that correctly, it would have you would have made my point, which is that when you think of Tim Duncan, you think of his five championships. Nobody thinks of the fact that they won one of the titles in a somewhat shortened season, although they still played well, more than if, half the schedule like, games. Charles Barkley won his only championship in a shortened season. Would that mean something different than one of five for Tim Duncan? Not to me, it wouldn't. It's still a season. Yeah, I, it's still I, I don't think it would to me that. either. I mean, it, this, yeah. these are circumstances out of his control. I mean, the players show up and they play. I mean, they can't. Yeah, I mean, I mean this is coronavirus. Nobody it, has, I, yeah. I think it's just, you know, to me, it's just, a, and it, it's because it transcends all sports and all life. It's different than just one league, you know, having a lockout or a strike. Like, it's just, I feel like everything this year is going to be thought of a little bit differently in the future. I mean, but. Ian, think of like all the baseball championships the Yankees won before, uh, when the teams just went straight to the World Series. Like the the playoff format has changed over the years in all sports. So I think this is just another change that's brought on. It, it's not like there's a team that's rigging the schedule. Everyone has the same shot at the championship. So I think to it does favor the teams that are a little bit toward the back of the pack because there's a shorter schedule. But to Adam's point, it's still an or 82 chance game. for chaos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's still an 82-game season, so you're going to have That's enough of a sample size. Where, yeah. yeah. So, And the NBA is, is also nearing a decision on what they're going to do. It's Adam Silver had said that they need about two to four weeks to decide whether or not they're going to have it or attempt to play a season or not. And the NBA is going a little bit of a different route. So rather than than playing in the home stadiums with no fans, they are looking at single location opportunities. I know Vegas and Orlando have been two of the destinations discussed, but their plan pretty much is the players have to agree that if somebody tests positive for coronavirus, that they have to keep going with the season. They have to accept the fact that it's likely someone is going to get it and essentially treat coronavirus like an injury where guys benched DNP coronavirus and, and, and go on as scheduled. Uh, theoretically, this sounds like it, it could be a, a recipe for disaster if a lot of players come down with it. But what are your guys' thoughts on, on this approach by uh, Adam Silver? And do you think it's ultimately going to pass? So I think for one, it'll only work if they are ready to test. If somebody contracts coronavirus, are they ready to test every single player that is potentially come in contact with that person? And I think it also might be an instance where they might have to be ready to pull the plug because what if an entire team gets it? You know, then what do you do? You disqualify them from from the season. So, you know, I'm, as much as I want basketball to come back because I think the Sixers might be able to surprise a couple of people, I, I I'm just not so sure about this. I mean, to yeah. me, it's yeah. it, it's it's a more practical plan in a way than MLB. I think it's inevitable that someone or some members of a team will test positive. And the question is, how do you handle it? I think Mike makes a good point, though. If you have, you know, whatever it is, half of a team and you need to fill the roster, I don't know if they're going to expand rosters like MLB. I assume that's probably part of it, but it's going to have a different feel to it because, you know, NBA is such a star driven league. If you have the big guys, you know, we saw. Donovan Mitchell tested positive. Like some of the top names have that potential of, of testing positive. So 
it's going to be strange. Um, hopefully for the NBA, the bubble type uh, setup will help the, you know, the chances. Um, but I think that's the way these leagues have to think is what happens, not if, but when someone tests positive. Yeah, I, I agree with with Ian and, and Mike. I, I think that it's going to be very different. But at the same time, I think there is a, a good chance that they come back. Uh, you have the summer league set up, which will basically be what this is, either in Orlando or, or Vegas. Uh, and they have a system in place where even though, yes, players can get infected, they have a way or at least the strategy of dealing with that. And it could be an unfortunate situation where a star player for a team gets infected and then they're out. But in this environment, that's just the luck of the draw this year. So so I, I think that eventually it's going to happen. I think we will see a summer league type setup. And I think you'll see the NBA playoffs in, in the summer, either June or, or July, whatever it'll be. Reincarnation of the Monte Carlo scrimmage. Right, exactly. Make it happen. Yeah. We'll count for a bit more this time. Yeah. Well, uh, as I mentioned before, the NBA expects to make a decision in the next two to four weeks. So hopefully we'll have something to look forward to then. So let's transition to one final topic before we wrap up. The NFL released its schedule last week, which to me, I could care less. I, I have known the Jets opponents uh, for months now, but a lot of people are kind of intrigued to see when the matchups are going to take place. And, you know, what's the first thing that you look for when an NFL releases its schedule? There's so many different things to look for, but what do you most look forward to when the schedule is released? So overall, I look at the primetime slots. Um when, when I'm not looking at my own team, if I'm looking at the league in general, I'm looking at the primetime slots. Who does the NFL think is going to be great? Who, you know, what, what do they think is going to make great TV? And, you know, one thing that, that stuck out to me is they're not entirely sold on the Buccaneers yet. I, I think they've got a total of uh, five primetime games, which it doesn't seem to be too much more than the, the average team. I so. think there might be a max, though, isn't there for each team? Is there? Yeah, there is. Not only in baseball. Mm-hmm. No, there's a max for football also. Okay, so I thought that was only for a single night. I thought that, you know, for, for any of the three nights. But but nonetheless, um, yeah, I, I, you know, maybe they're taking a wait-and-see approach, and I, I'd be curious I, as to what the max is. I thought I had read somewhere that the Buccaneers have more primetime games this year than they've had in, like, the last 10 years. I, I may be wrong exactly like on that. that could be true, and Mike's could be point could be true. <laughs> yeah, five games seems like a lot, but... Yeah, as much for, as the Rams have... Um, yeah, for, for me, I, I'm selfish. I look at the Bears' uh, schedule and how it falls out. I know the opponents, but I want to know when the Bears are playing their respective opponents. Um, but I agree with Mike. I, I think, to me, I want to see who's on national TV, what matchups fall where. I mean, it's going to be really cool. Buck Saints, week one. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, Brady against Breeze. And you'll get two of those matchups this year. And then also... Uh, just seeing who the networks think is going to be good. It's like a, a preseason prediction of of who's favored and who's less favored. But, um, you know, I ESPN clearly milked this for all it was worth with their three, <laughs> three hour hours release. Um, I did not watch them. a single minute of it, by the way. No, it all came out on Twitter, like at the same time. So <laughs> you could save yourself the three hours. Um, for me, I think it's just that I don't know what the stat is, but the Giants have always started the season against Dallas, and it's not supposed to happen this year. They they started against the Steelers. So 
I know there was some discussion of the league kind of pushing back a lot of the, um, you know, interdivision matchups in case the season has to get delayed. So that might be part of it. Um, the second thing I saw, Mike, while is on my birthday of this year, September 20th, the Giants are at the Bears. So Ooh, if for some Chicago, reason this virus no goes away, distancing. maybe uh, we take a, a Sunday afternoon out of it. So. Yeah, you, you stole my point, Ian. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say my, well, my birthday is late October. And of course the Mets never play on my birthday because they're never playing into late October. So the Jets are home against Buffalo on my birthday this year. So uh, I don't think I'll go because I don't think any fans will be there, but happy to see that. Wouldn't be too tough a ticket even if. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> as Mike mentioned, the, the prime tent games are always fun. Uh, the Thanksgiving games, I, I always look to see um, yeah. who's playing on Thanksgiving. And then to me also, maybe it, maybe I'm alone in this. I'm always anxious to see when the bye week is. I know the Jets had yeah. a really early bye last year. It was like week five, I think. Uh, this year is a little bit later in the season, but that's always a nice chance to see when your team will have a chance to reset and hopefully build some momentum for the back end of the season. But I always hate to see a really early uh, bye week um, on the schedule. Although actually last year for the Jets, it helped them because uh, Sam Darnold had mono and it gave him an extra week to recover. But uh, that's what I look for. <laughs> and I just did a quick fact check. You guys are right. The, uh, there, there is a preseason maximum to the number of primetime games. So I guess my first comment there you was go. on the Buccaneers. <laughs> All good. All right. So let's transition to final thoughts. So we've, we've had some great spirited discussion today. And let's start with Mike Mandel, your final thoughts for today's show. So thinking about the documentary, um, and I, I read a couple of the critical columns. The challenge I would give to the critics is, you know, the, the last dance was filmed over a period of several months. They, they, they talked to so many people, you know, spent a ton of time and resources putting it together. Um, it, it probably took these writers an hour, two hour tops to you know, to write their columns, you know, trashing the uh, the series as a puff piece for Michael Jordan. So my, my challenge would be, okay, if you, if you guys really think that, you know, the, that the documentary is slanted, why don't you guys put some effort into it? You know, because, I mean, no, no one's going to take a, you know, an op-ed that takes 10 minutes to read seriously, right? If, if they really want to try to put some holes um, into the last dance, you know, they, they should – They've got the resources, right? So, you know, put your own piece together. Talk to some people and, you know, even if it's only one program, at least get it together so you can put your own spin on it. Mike Weil, your final thought. Sure. So so first, uh, I want to give a congratulations to my sister, Jessica. She just graduated from Columbia University with a master's in literacy. So... Jess, very proud of you. Second ma she's got two masters. So if you really want a good teacher, talk to my sister because she has two masters, uh, both from Columbia, actually. So very impressive. Uh, my final thought, if I thought about it, what would I say if I was in the documentary? Because <laughs> I I was little and I the, the Thank one you, Michael. And what would your title? Uh, be? Yes. Uh, <laughs> title title would be current Chicago resident uh, and and former WBRS sports host or current <laughs> and, and current podcast host. Uh, it's a long a long Chiron like a long uh, description. But um, I actually have a very cool Michael Jordan story. I think it's cool that in like 1992, I think it was Jordan was um, having trick or treaters over like 
very little kids, but I was, my dad took me and, and my brother Jeff uh, to his house and we had to wait forever in line. But I was wearing a Robin Ventura jersey and Jeff was wearing a Scottie Pippen jersey. And this might have been foreshadowing because we get to the door. Michael Jordan looks at me, gives me a piece of candy. He's like, I really like your costume. And then he turns to Jeff, who's wearing a Pippen jersey, and he's like, yours, I don't really like as much. So <laughs> wow. So that was a little foreshadowing because he ended up going to the White Sox, or at least the organization, two years later. And I'll never forget that. He, um, I think it was either Skittles or Starburst that he had. I think Skittles. I think he was giving out Skittles. So Marshawn Lynch, Marshawn Lynch would approve. So I'll never forget trick or treating uh, at Michael Jordan's house. So that did would you be have to story. walk through the the twenty three gates to get in? You drove through. You drove okay. through the twenty three. Or I actually I don't know if his house was built at that time. If that house was built at that time, I have to go back and see. But I remember we had to drive through a, a long driveway. We were sitting behind a bunch of cars, uh, and then we walked up to the the door to see him. So that's awesome. Um, yeah, it was very cool. Great story. Um, my final thought is unrelated to anything we've discussed tonight, but I think in a way is perfect for a final thought because it's kind of random. Um, CC Sabathia is now the most in shape former MLB player ever. Uh, last night the picture came out. Uh, I, I thought it was Photoshop, but I guess he confirmed it today that he's uh, he's super ripped and uh, looks like he's ready to, you know, ready for opening day. Um, I know a lot of people have been saying, you know, why is he doing this now? But if if you remember, he actually did slim down one year and he was a lot worse. So he put the weight back on and he pitched better. So this wasn't necessarily a slim down. This is, uh, you know, he's kind of gotten ripped. So uh, just kind of one of these random offseason things that when there's no sports going on, uh, you know, things like this kind of catch fire. So it was interesting to see CC's workout routine. And I guess he's going to be detailing it on our competitor podcast tomorrow <laughs> that he has with Ryan Rucco. So uh, maybe we can share some more details on next week's podcast. Sounds good. I, and I did see that photo, by the way. My final thought, I read something on Twitter, so you know it must be true. Actually, it was by Darren Ravel, so you really know it's true. But I saw that, I read a story that the Bulls apparently uh, let their famous PA announcer, Ray Clay, uh, they, they relieved him of his duties in 2002 over a disagreement about how he was going to introduce Michael Jordan in Chicago uh, in, in his return as a Wizards player. And as if there was enough turmoil in the Bulls front office, that was that made me really upset to hear that because this guy, Ray Clay, first of all, he was the inspiration for our uh, podcast intro a couple episodes ago. But that guy is a legend. And I think the the intro music to those Bulls championship teams are, are a part of that story. And the fact that he, it sounds like, was getting pushback on how he was going to introduce MJ in his first game back in opposing uniform, uh, really disappointing to hear that. Yeah, we could spend some time on this next week if you want. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. And it's disappointing because I still, I still miss hearing his voice at, at Bulls games. All right. Well, that will do it for episode number five of the podcast to be named later, or perhaps the podcast that has already been named. Uh, from <laughs> Mike be. Mandel. I, I like it. It's catchy. <laughs> from Mike Mandel, Mike Weil, and Ian Gus, my name is Adam Rosen, and we'll talk to you next week.